Hello. Thank you for joining us for the seventh episode of the R&D 100 podcast. As always, we are so glad to have you back here with us, and I hope that you, dear viewers, are staying well and that 2022 is treating you kindly thus far. My name is Paul Heaney. I'm the VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. Joining me here today is my fabulous co-host, Amy Kalnaskis. Hello, Paul. You're pretty fab, too. Hey, it's Aww. a pleasure to get back on the microphone with you. Or hang on, is it headphones? Uh, I never know which end of the recording is up. Uh, <laughs> but regardless, thank you once again. And yes, this is Amy Kalnaskis, R&D's World's Senior Editor, reporting for Podcast Duty. And I am so ready for our seventh episode here, Paul. It has been a while. I am equally ready, and I'm excited to be chatting with you once again. As you should. <laughs> All right, let's get some of the basics out of the way. For any new listeners that are just tuning in, this is a podcast where we examine the science of innovation through looking at the genesis of a specific past R&D 100 award winner. We're really glad you are here. And speaking of the R&D 100 awards, we uh, are in the midst of, I guess I'll call it submission season, Amy. So the... Uh, the, the 2022 uh, R&D 100 Awards are the 60th anniversary. Pretty exciting mm -hmm. uh, for this uh, renowned awards program. Uh, they call them the Oscars of Innovation. Um, <laughs> they open March 1st, and uh, the deadline at the, the early bird rate uh, is May 6th. So that's going to be coming up sooner than you think. Uh, yeah. I would focus on that deadline. The late deadline where the fee goes up $100 is going to be June 3rd. Um, we're hoping to announce the finalists in an August timeline, but you know more on that later in the summer. And then the goal is uh, our awards ceremony would be November 17th. We're hoping to get back in person. That would be, uh, just, did I say November 17th? I'm losing my mind. In San Diego yeah. at yeah, the uh, right. Coronado Island Marriott Resort and Spa. So again, we'll have that confirmed later in the summer, but uh, maybe circle that on your calendar, Amy and dear listeners, and hopefully we will uh, be back with some champagne and some tuxedos and lovely evening gowns. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to dust off my uh, tuxedo gown that I wore last time. I don't know. I have to dig it out of there somewhere. It's a couple I, of COVID years ago. <laughs> you always, you always know how to dress up well, Amy. <laughs> well, thank you. And then, uh, you know, another little thing I thought I should mention is that, uh, for the second year in a row, this uh, humble podcast that you're listening to is a regional finalist for the best B2B podcast in the Heartland region of the ASBPE, which is the American side, excuse me, American Society of Business Publication Editors. Easy for me to say. Nice. Good job. You and a little me. Okay. <laughs> a lot of you. A lot of you. <laughs> hey, uh, you know what else, uh, audience? I just want to mention that R&D World Magazine is also a regional finalist for these other two print items. Mm -hmm. um, in the design category, opening page or spread, and that was Facing Sustainability Feature Story. Um, awesome work there by some of our, our graphic designers, really amazing. And in the editorial category, State of the Industry Articles, um, the Global R&D Funding Forecast. Yeah, I'll call out Mariel Evans, who was our graphic designer for that, uh, the design yeah. one. And then uh, the, the GFF, I mean, that's uh, a lot of Tim Stutt and a, a, a bit of Lee Teschler and a little bit of me and a little bit of Heather Hall. It's a, it's a it's definitely a uh, 
a team effort. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I guess one other thing uh, I, I think I should mention, Amy, is that there has just been a lot of great content posted on rdworldonline.com lately. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure if you saw, there was a fantastic uh, green chemistry story uh, on uh, uh, John Warner that uh, Becky cool. Chambers Hennessy wrote. She's uh, one of our contributors. She always does such great uh, journalistic writing. And uh, John Warner, if you remember, he was uh, one of the speakers when we had our online conference a year or two ago. Yes, yep. And then, you know, we've got Tim Studd, who, uh, is, as I mentioned, he writes the, uh, the uh, annual funding forecast for us. He, uh, he also does an, a weekly R&D power index, and, uh, and those are really well read and very insightful. Those usually come out on Mondays, and uh, so I would watch for those. Uh, Heather Hall has been doing an, the R&D 100 winner of the day, where we obviously announce all the winners, but then uh, over the course of the rest of the year, every few days, she posts about one particular one where we can have a little more of a spotlight on an individual winner, and those are also pretty popular. And then lastly, um, a lot of you may know Mark Jones, who is retired, formerly of uh, Dow Chemical. He uh, was a, a judge for years, still is a judge on the R&D 100s. And he's uh, in his retirement, he's uh, writing, writing a little bit for us. And he had a, a really fun piece on road salt, uh, one on curling, and, <laughs> and figures out ways to, to bring these random uh, everyday things into kind of a research realm. And he's got another one, too, that I'm working on. Uh, uh, sneak preview uh it's about neon so uh keep it keep an eye out for that yeah a lot of great stories good stuff real good stuff for sure um okay well on that note paul i think i'm ready to get into the meat of today's podcast what right. do you have for me today so i think that i have something that you will find particularly interesting amy given uh your history of some back pain Really? Well, I'm always open to hearing if anything's changed since my surgery four or five years ago. Um, mm -hmm. It was chronic pain for five years and uh, the surgery helped um, mm -hmm. quite a bit, but I keep thinking, is there something else? Is there something, you know, and I've got a little bit of a hint from you that, yeah, maybe there is. So what is today's R&D 100 winner that, who we're exam that we're examining? Today, it's Nalu Medical's Nalu MIPG system, a miniature implantable pulse generator, or MIPG, and it's for treating chronic pain, Amy. Chronic pain? You got my attention now, Paul. <laughs> I knew I would. So this implant is between 9 and 27 times smaller than other commercially available implantable pulse generators, but it delivers treatment out options that are similar to larger IPGs. Plus, it has additional capabilities around advanced waveforms, programming, and upgradability. So this device offers, you know, the clinical and the practical benefits of a battery-free and minimally invasive implant without compromising on, you know, the pain relief or its therapeutic capabilities. Um, NALU incorporates multiple design factors not previously used in chronic pain IPGs, such as externalizing the battery, as I mentioned. Whoa. Now, the NALU system's smaller size means that it's a less invasive procedure, and there's the potential to reduce post-implant complications, and then that external wireless power supply, I mean, it just eliminates battery replacement surgery, too. Uh, 
Oh, 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 sorry. Oh, a little distracted here. I just opened a new browser window, checking to see if it's on Amazon Prime, Paul. <laughs> You've always been such a pioneer, Amy. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I will wait until at least at the end of the episode, you know, patience being my thing. All right. <laughs> so who did you talk to from NALU? Well, I had the pleasure of chatting with Lee Hartley, the chief technology officer, and John Ruiz, the chief commercial officer at NALU. Here they are giving us their backgrounds. I'm Lee Hartley. I'm an electrical engineer, systems engineer, integrated circuits uh, fellow from, uh, from my whole life. I did my undergraduate at uh, Kingston, uh, Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. I did my master's and PhD in system integration at the University of Calgary, so I'm Canadian. I've been living in the US since for about 20 plus years uh, when I entered the neuromodulation space. Prior to that, I was a, a research engineer with uh, IBM Research in Canada doing wireless communications and integrated circuits and chips and systems of that sort, and really sort of brought that expertise and know-how uh, and an interest in biology and the likes to, uh, to the engineering side of medicine and um, have been there ever since. Uh, spent about 15 years doing uh, cochlear implants before coming into the pain modulation space. So uh, I've been doing implantable medical neuromodulation systems and chips and uh, products for uh, the, the bulk of my career. Yeah, this is John. Uh, so I began uh, as a political science major out at the George Washington University in DC. I got the opportunity to study abroad at Oxford University, where I studied politics, philosophy, and economics over in England. And then with that sort of liberal arts background, made the logical choice to become a nuclear engineer in the Navy uh, as a submarine officer, right? Because that's what all liberal arts majors do. Uh, so I became a certified nuclear engineer there, uh, spent half my time in back aft running the reactor, the other half up forward during Operation Iraqi Freedom, doing launching Tomahawk missiles, playing with Navy SEALs, doing the hunt for Red October, that sort of thing. Uh, picked up my MBA on nights and weekends on my last duty station and then got out and got into the med tech world. So coming up on 20 years now, I've been working in uh, med tech, mostly in the commercial sort of marketing type of realms, both in the upstream, working with uh, folks like Lee, trying to figure out where's the future, what are the products being that interface between the customer and the engineer, and then vice versa. Uh, and then uh, started off in neuromodulation with a little company called ANS that became St. Jude and then became Abbott on the neuromodulation space. Worked for a left ventricular assist device called Thoratech, so essentially artificial hearts. So I ran a $500 million global commercial organization for them for a while until they too were swallowed up by St. Jude and Abbott. A couple of small interventional cardiology companies, and then got the opportunity to get back into neuromodulation with NALU. So I've been here coming up on five years here in a little bit. I was a first commercial hire, helped build out the sales and marketing team, of reimbursement, uh, helped with the clinical studies, built all our training programs, both internally, externally, uh, janitorial services, whatever is necessary to get the company up and running. Okay, okay, I get it. They have a lot of street cred. But hey, Paul, did you, um, there's a little known fact about me, and that's I was also a nuclear engineer in the Navy as a submarine officer before I became a B2B journalist. What do you think of that? I do not believe that for one second, Amy. Oh, not come on. I said that in my most genuine voice. Uh, anyway. You did, you did, but I can you <laughs> through it. I, I almost got you right. Okay, all right, fine. So, uh, Lee and John have had really interesting paths on the way to Nalu, for sure. Tell me more. Well, they did have pretty fascinating paths to their current positions, as, I mean, really, so many of our winners seem to have had. So as a start, I asked Lee to talk a little bit about the 
field of neuromodulation as a, you know some background for us. So the field of neuromodulation in general has been around for several decades with some of the kind of pioneering work happening literally back in the 50s, 60s and the likes. By the 70s and 80s, it was to a certain degree becoming kind of mainstream. There, there were tangible demonstrations of the ability to electrically stimulate nerves around the body to elicit uh, uh, therapeutic benefit for patients. The systems, if you look at the earliest ones, were very simple. They were, you know, hand-wound wires just dipped in silicone or plastic to make them biocompatible and dropped in the body with one or two contacts and just kind of did what they did. And the uh, effects were real. The, the um, potential was unambiguous. As technology has advanced over the last 40 years with predominantly integrated circuits and system integration and methods of, of very efficient RF power transfer and battery technology and implantable device design housings, you know, bio, bio uh, compatibility and all, the size and feature sets have exploded. So what used to be very rudimentary single two contact types of systems um, quickly evolved into internally powered rechargeable 32 contact systems, for example, where now <clears throat> the, uh, the ability to stimulate the nerve was, was virtually unlimited. Right? If you could get the right set of electrodes near the right set of nerves, nerve or nerves, um, you could play all sorts of games with changing the way the excitation is delivered to elicit different responses. You could play with frequency, with amplitude, with rate and the pulse widths, the lo a long list of parameters that go into these systems. The um, area where our system has come in and reinvented in a way is a is a wireless system. So we're externally powered with an implantable pulse generator that has all of the capabilities for doing diverse stimulation of nerves uh, from a system point of view. So the electronic system is robust, diverse, highly configurable, highly flexible. The device itself is very small. So it's sort of come full circle. The earliest days, they were all wireless and then batteries became the thing. We went back and looked at how can we do it again with very efficient wireless power transfer from the outside to the inside and make the device significantly smaller on the inside without giving up on the capabilities. Paul, you said that this device is for chronic pain. And of course, you know, that's when I got very interested. Mm -hmm. But for the listeners who aren't personally familiar with the term, and I really hope many of you aren't, because I am, can you give them a bit of explanation as to what chronic means in, in a clinical sense? Sure. So, you know, I think we're, we're all familiar with the idea of acute pain. Mm -hmm. And so what that is, is, you know, if I, if I'm walking around and I stub my toe, it, it hurts for a little while. Um, after some period of time, assuming I didn't stub it too badly, the pain goes away. Um, conversely, chronic pain is where that pain becomes endemic within the system. Mm -hmm. So as John told me, it's when, you know, something changes chemically within the body where that pain just never goes away. Um, that could be due to damage to a nerve. It could be due to mechanical trauma. It could be, you know, something squeezed by bone. It could be chemical issues. Um, it could be cancer or, or something that, you know, caused the pain state to simply not go away. Uh, most of these pain patients 
I was told on a scale of zero to 10, they are typically in like a seven or an eight, you know, almost all the time. Uh, John talked a little bit more about this and, and some of, of what can happen, you know, just from the surgeries. So for spinal cord stimulation, a real traditional would be uh, what they might call failed back surgery syndrome or, or post uh, surgery uh, uh, types of syndromes where you have both back and leg pain. That's sort of been a very traditional, that's sort of the bulk of neuromodulation usage has been around that. So usually these sort of back pains resulting either from surgeries or, or trauma to the back. Uh, there are some uses up in the neck and extremities and things like that, but predominantly for back and lower uh, leg pain. Peripheral nerve stimulation is a little different. Just about every surgery that you can name, about 20 to 30% of patients after any major surgery are going to end up with some residual pain. So you, you name the surgery, neck surgeries, carpal tunnel releases, mastectomies, uh, hernia repair surgeries, knee surgeries, shoulder surgeries, you name it. All of these end up with at least a certain percentage, as you can imagine, as you dig around, you might damage those nerves. That's where peripheral nerve stimulation would go in. So peripheral nerve stimulation, you'll place the leads typically out in the periphery, right near where that pain is hurting. And that provides a very focal sort of area. You can imagine spinal cord stimulation, all the nerves that are out on the periphery are like branches of a tree and then form the trunk and the spinal cord. So when we place leads there, then you can get very broad coverage in terms of the pain relief. So spinal cord stimulation, really good for broad-based pain, peripheral nerve stimulation for very focal pain. John also talked about how hard it can be for average people without any sort of chronic pain to, to truly understand what it's like for people with this condition. It, it's an interesting syndrome because it's hard for us psychologically to think about these patients. We're all used to pain of some sort, and then it sort of goes away, or sort of the normal aches and pains, we're all probably at a one and a two. It's hard to conceptualize what life is like to be a seven or eight. And so what ends up happening, those patients tend to become withdrawn, they get depressed, they end up stumbling through general practitioners, surgeons, and they just sort of stumble from treatment to treatment. And a lot of, you know, up until recently, a lot of them ended up on long-term opioids, which is not exactly a place that you want to be, right? So yes, it sort of deals with the pain, but you've got dependency and addiction and all kinds of other issues that go along with it. And so it's one of the places where spinal cord stimulation and peripheral nerve stimulation has helped is that as we've tried to move away from using long-term opioids, that's a whole bunch of patients who have a non-addictive therapy. And it's one of the interesting things, if, if the therapy doesn't work, you can pull our systems out. So it's not like you're doing a surgery where if you don't like the results of the back surgery, you can't say, hey, just put it back to the way it was, right? You're, you're sort of now stuck with it. With us, you get an opportunity to, to pull it out if you don't like it. And in fact, we have the ability, what we call a trial. So actually placing the leads against the nerve, you'll use that for maybe five to seven days. And we get a chance to really test it out before you go and implant the full system. And that way you get a chance to try before you buy, if you will, see if their uh, neurostimulation will work for you. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because um, I get it. And I remember telling people when, cause I was in chronic back pain for about five years before I had oh the gosh. surgery. And, and like they said, there are a lot, a lot of complications that can come from surgeries. I remember getting like the top 10 say you will never walk again, or, oh you know, you will, you will die. Yeah. There were, there were lots of things that could happen, but 
Um, it, well, I remember saying to people, because you don't see me bleeding profusely, it's hard for you to realize how much pain I am in. Sure. And it, it was, it was um, a, definitely a quality of life issue, like finally not even being able to walk down the street with my dog. But what was interesting is, um, you know, and he mentioned something like, this is what you learn to live with. And you're saying seven to eight. Mm. When you don't, when you no longer have that pain, it kind of becomes like like your BFF in a really perverted kind of way hmm. is it, it's just, you become so used to it, sadly, that when it does go away and mine didn't completely go away, I still have issues, hmm. but I can't wait to hear more. Um, all of a sudden you're like, what is something's missing from my life? Hmm. What is it? Because it just becomes like this dark shadow that you carry around with you. So oh um, yeah, I, I just, it, what he has said so far is just, fascinating and um boy I wish this was happening five years ago but I guess the R&D was happening five years ago yeah yeah it almost makes me think of like you know when took my kids to an Eagles concert recently here and it's you know the Eagles are are, are old fogies now like like yes. I'm getting to be but uh you know it's, it's like you're at this concert for two or three hours huh. and then you leave and you walk outside and you're like oh there's like an absence of blaring sound <laughs> And it's so strange, like almost like the ringing in your ears left over, like what's, yeah, it's exactly. not there anymore. That's what kind of what it made me think of. It's ex that's exactly what it is, and it's a very strange feeling. It's kind of spooky, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a it's probably the best way to say it. Not necessarily spooky, but incredibly disorienting. So I yeah, bet. I get it. Oh. oh my gosh. Well, let's get back. Thank you for your your personal input there, Amy. Yeah, um, no problem. Let's get back to it, huh? Yeah, yeah, let's get back to, to the micro IPG. So I guess I wanted to make clear that a typical IPG uses a battery. And then these devices range from about 14 to 40 cc's in size, which I realize for the average person probably doesn't mean yeah. a whole lot. But by comparison, that's about the size of a large matchbook or even larger than that in terms of the implant. So Nalu's device by comparison, is one and a half cc's. <laughs> and it has all the capabilities of these larger ones. Wow. So for like a traditional spinal cord stimulator system, about 80% of that val volume is going to be battery. Mm -hmm. And the other 20% is the electronics. So what Lee and the other engineers were able to do is pull out that battery, which right there, that allowed them to dramatically shrink the size. But then also taking all those electronics and working to shrink them down mm -hmm. into an integrated circuit that's maybe the size of your pinky. Mm. So that's why they call it a micro IPG because it is, I mean, I mean, it is significantly smaller in terms of the implantable volume. You know, what you have to like physically like put in, the, in inside under the skin for the, for the patient. So with a traditional implant, you'd have probably a two inch incision for that implant. But here with the micro IPG, it's really about one and a half centimeters. So it is a it's, it's a very, very small incision overall. Wow, that's actually smaller than the incision for my back surgery, but oh I, and I thought that was small. Mm -hmm. and, and removing the battery, I mean, I don't know if everyone realizes how incredibly innovative that is. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that just blows my mind, it really does. So I've got to think that it's, you know, um, it's much easier than surgery you know, I, it just sounds like it so far with an IPG mm. and it's a small fraction of the size. So, um, okay, where did this idea come from and what was the genesis of it, Paul? So Amy, it started back in 2014 
And here, let's listen to Ree, to Lee with his recollection of exactly how things began. Okay. Nalu was founded uh, with a, a small group, my, myself, uh, our original CEO, uh, and two fellows out of Stanford University that had uh, kind of brought an idea through a, uh, uh, you know, an incubator project or program out of Stanford that, that uh, created some IP. Um, they were not familiar with you know, the productization in a, in a medical device sense of uh, taking an idea to market. Uh, myself and our CEO uh, both had uh, several, several decades of, of experience doing implantable medical devices. So we partnered up, uh, founded the company in 2014, uh, operated on, on seed funds while we kind of laid the foundation architecturally for what we wanted the system to, to be, how it would look, the direction of uh, technologies that would be needed to prove it out. Um, we're fundraising while we did that. We secured our first uh, serious round of venture funding in 2015. Uh, we've progressed through, through multiple stages of funding since. And, um, you know, and, and are where we are today. So it was founded in 14 uh, from a uh, idea to take wireless power transfer and do what John said be able to deliver devices that have all of the capabilities that we can pack into integrated circuits in a form factor that is massively smaller than the state of the art, which are these large implantable batteries. So we wanted all the capabilities of stimulation and the electronics and the size, but with technologies that were available through modern day integrated circuit technology and design methodologies, be able to realize the front end power system to have that be functional and efficient in an extremely small form factor. So basically come back and, you know, to, to coin a, or not coin, but to, to use an overused term to, to reinvent a wheel. And, and we truly made a, a really cool, small, better wheel. So I asked both Lee how the development of the micro IPG started. And he told me that it was pretty much a blank state. Um, they knew they wanted to create a smaller device. Mm -hmm. They wanted to put a device inside of people that was going to be, you know, pretty small. Um, it was going to be powered by something that they wear externally. And so right there, I mean, that was a significant challenge in itself to design wearable products that are comfortable, reliable, easy to use and robust. The dominant space where we really challenged ourselves through our own experience, outside consultants, early feasibility studies with patient type people, uh, you know, candidates, representative demographics, to go through iterative cycles of concept, test, evaluate, iterate, concept, test, evaluate, iterate. We did that multiple times for, for several years. In parallel, the core engineering piece was marching ahead. We knew that we needed to build an integrated circuit. We knew about neuromodulation. We knew what the stimulation circuitry needed to be. We knew how power transfer needed to work. But then when it came to put it all together, all of these forces were tugging on each other and it, it became a multivariable optimization problem between performance, size, comfort, usability, and you know, ultimately hitting multiple goals that were pulling in different directions. John also talked a bit about some of the testing they did during the development process, which I thought was really, really interesting. 
Lee mentioned one of the big uh, portions of our device, we have an external component. And so that was a very new element to our system. And we wanted to make sure that before we started to do any of the implants that we really understood what life would be like. Uh, if you can sort of compare our implant versus the traditional implants, it's really a no brainer in terms of the size and capabilities, but as such, the external became very important. So it was uh, important that we pulled together a lot of patient feedback. So you know, we, we had a lot of design iteration, got some, but you know, the proof is in the human pudding, if you will, of getting it out into real world patient interaction. So in the early days before we did any implants, we recruited about 100 chronic pain patients and asked them to actually wear our external portion of the device, not to get a full implant, but just the external portion for up to 30 days during their normal activities of daily living. And so we went up to Chicago during the polar vortex where it's cold and dry. We went down to New Orleans where it was hot and humid. We got you know, big patients, skinny patients, young, old, dry skin, sweaty skin, sensitive skin, just to see what the massive humanity would be like. And we learned a lot. And it, it's been, I think, a big part of our design, design philosophy that the, the truth is out there, right? It's in the patients and happy patients are a big part of what we're working towards, particularly with an external device like this. So we spent a lot of time getting that sort of patient feedback, iterating on it. And we learned a lot in terms of how to wear it, what's the process, design iteration, all of those sort of things. So that's been an important part of the process. And I really applaud the engineering team and making sure that we continue to push on that at all times to make sure that we're always getting patient input or physician input on the procedure and elements of it. That's an important part of the whole process. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool too. Hey, Paul, we heard earlier about John's and Lee's um, really fascinating backgrounds, you know, and mine as a, you know, nuclear person. Um, so <laughs> I thought that was good. Come on. All right. But seriously, what about the rest of the team? This was teamwork for sure. I mean, you must have, they must have had folks on there from multiple disciplines in order to pull this off. You are absolutely correct, Amy. And, and really, they both took some time to talk about that as well. So here is Lee first, and then John. The first two years were almost entirely uh, an engineering team. Um, myself and a, a team of uh, uh, four to five others, round numbers, uh, bringing experience in some of the long pole technology pieces that we knew would take years to develop and would start on this. That was the integrated circuit development, the RF system engineering, uh, the mechanical design of implantable products and housings and hermetic cases and all of the know-how that goes into building a device that needs to spend its life living inside a living human. Um, that requires expertise of people that have done it and expertise of contract manufacturers and outside partners who have the, have the know-how to fulfill the drawings and the dreams and the visions and help you make the trade-offs. So I would say for at least two years, we were, uh, I mean, we were 100% an engineering company. That, that's just all, all there was to it. Um, the disciplines predominantly were integrated circuits, RF systems, mechanical engineering, and software. And John, why don't you expand on, on how we then grew as, as uh, the market-facing world start, really started to come into focus? Yeah, as, so as I mentioned a little bit earlier, and this is John again, uh, we, I was the first commercial hire. So then we started you know, pulling in a little bit more of the commercial insight and starting to, to get you know, a lot more interaction with customers, really starting to think about how this plays in the environment. 
I think one of the important things we realized, one of our indications that we're used for is peripheral nerve stimulation. And while there are some existing systems on the market today, they're very limited and very different. We were really bringing something very different and unique to the table. And so as such, as we started interacting with physicians in the early days, we realized that we didn't really know what we we're doing. What are the right targets? How do you do the implant procedure? We had so many more capabilities than what other people had. We weren't even sure how to utilize that in the, in the best ways. So what we put together, I mentioned in, in the earlier part, my background coming from the Navy, we formed uh, what I called a PNS Tiger Team. And so in the military, the idea of a tiger team is you run into a problem and you're not sure how to solve it. You bring together sort of a cross-functional team to tackle it while everyone's still doing their day jobs. And then once you solve the problem, it goes away. So the idea of the PNS tiger team is we brought on, you know, uh, you know some of the mechanical engineering team members. We brought on a couple of field-based personnel who had experience with other companies, uh, a couple of sales reps that we brought on. So a real cross-functional team to say, hey, the goal of this is to figure this out what's working, what's not, rapid feedback and iteration. And we modified the procedure a number of times, how we thought about patients, what are the targets, what are the approaches, pulled together physicians in a cadaver lab, really tried to tear into it. But like I said, it's sort of rapid iteration. Let's go out there, watch what people are doing. If that works, great. Let's feed that rapidly back to the team. If it doesn't, let's sort of rapidly pivot. And we were able to deal with a number of, of different sort of struggles and issues along the way to, to get there. And so having that sort of cross-functional team, not just sort of the commercial base, but across a sort of the team and the engineering side of it, I think was one of the reasons we've been so successful to date and are about to really take off and, and be a market leader, particularly in that side of the space. I also asked John about any roadblocks and they had one very interesting area, reimbursements. Wait, reimbursements, all right, like in what context? Do you mean like looking ahead to insurance companies and something like that? Precisely. So one of the things when you're thinking about a medical device is thinking about the reimbursement. That's really one of the areas that a lot of startup companies don't consider. Um, there's always room within the reimbursement realm to be able to create new devices, but just that whole process to get reimbursement codes and payments figured out can be a really, really long road, as John told me. Uh, they, they did get a lot of early advice from people who were experts in that space just to make sure that their device would you know, fit within the codes. Um, that way, when the product is finally completed, you immediately have reimbursement available. And otherwise, you're going to have another whole long road uh, to get a lot of volume to prove that you, you have a product that should be used when there's no reimbursement for it. So here's a little more about what John told me in this area. So the med tech world can be very painful if you're not very conscious about what is your plan to develop the reimbursement either with existing codes or to go out and, and build it overall. So those were things that we considered early on and therefore avoided a lot of the pitfalls, I think along the way. Uh, I mentioned earlier about just when we walked into PNS, we pulled together a cadaver lab as sort of an anecdote with, uh, so it was six different physicians and we went after a couple of different targets. And every time we asked the physician, all right, what's the optimal approach you think with a system like ours for let's say like a shoulder? <clears throat> so we had six different physicians, probably had about 19 different recommended approaches all different from every single physician, right? As to how we go. And I remember coming out of that going, I don't know that we know how to teach PNS. 
at this point. And so that's where we had to go out and start rapidly diving in, learning, getting the feedback, what was working. And so try to be very data-driven about the approach overall to start to figure out the approaches. And, you know, we had some issues along the way with understanding the procedure. You know, we, you have sort of the envisionment in your mind of how it's going to work, but no plan or, or product probably survives contact with a true patient, right? Cadavers don't give you quite the level of feedback that, you know, a human patient does. And as you start to deal with real world issues and procedures and positions, you start to learn some mix. And we modified the procedure along the way to better understand stability of the system and make sure that the implant procedure was as smooth as possible. You know, it's always the goal of happy patients and happy physicians. So those are a couple examples of sort of things we had to be thinking about along the way. Hey, Paul, you know me, I'm always eager to hear what a new team thinks its secret sauce is for encouraging innovation. Did, did Nalu share, the folks at Nalu share that with you? Yeah, Amy, and it was, it was pretty simple. It kind of came down to test early and test often. Yikes. I had a high school math teacher who had that same philosophy. And let me tell you, I was not a fan in that context, Paul. I mean, I get how this, I get how it works in this context, but you know what? You're giving me like the delirium tremors. I'm giving you bad flashbacks. <laughs> well, I think, I think you'll agree that Nalu's approach is, is better in the R&D space. So let's, let's hear yeah. from Lee once again. And I think that works on all fronts, uh, technical, customer facing, um, market acceptance wise. I mean, field test it, uh, preference test it, engineering test it, try to do it three different ways and pick the best one um, or pick the one that is the second best one because it's orthogonal to another dimension and the best one doesn't work, but the second best does and it makes the overall system better in concert with another trade-off. So, and you only get there by testing early and testing often mm -hmm. and being willing to change. You know, I think the other thing, this is John, that's sort of, uh, so Keegan Harper, who was our CEO and founder, he's a bit of a serial entrepreneur, founded a number of different med tech companies and then sold them off. So he's been very successful. One of the things that I found with him is he was always pushing us. Right. So, you know, Lee and the engineering team would come back and say, okay, well, we can make it this small. He'd be great. I want a 10% smaller. Hey, I think we can deliver that in about six months and have X capabilities. Great. I want it in four months and I want it with double the capability, right? Those sort of things. And, you know, it, we weren't always able to deliver, but he was always sort of pushing, hold us accountable, you know, really, you know, striving to get a little bit extra, wanting a little bit more. It, it I think it helps to have somebody like that because it's very easy to get caught up in, in your Gantt charts and, and hitting exactly, you know, uh, exactly to the requirements, but having somebody like that on the team and willing to push and obviously having engineers like Lee and the others on board who were able to step up to those challenges and go. I always felt that, you know, having somebody like that who was just holding us accountable and pushing us for just a little bit more at all times, while sometimes drives you crazy during the process, you know, can really help and, and push the envelope a little more. I don't know if you agree with that, Lee. No, I do. I, and I think another way of saying it is make sure you've got a little bit of cat in your in your genetics so that so that you have nine lives. Mm -hmm. And because you might use one or two in getting to the end. The other thing that probably helps, and this uh, 
being well-funded. So Lee and the team often sort of talk about this. We were well-funded in the early days for a small company. Once again, having a successful CEO who, you know, previous success helped with this a lot. But when we would run into the inevitable science project where it was engineering of, hey, we just need to figure this out. It's like, shoot, we don't know how to bridge this gap. We were able to fund multiple sort of, you know, test and feasibility approaches to see how do we cross this gap. And then when one worked, okay, now we can focus on that as opposed to having to go in serial and having to go through two different projects before you got to the solution. We could be sort of racing along three at the same time. So being well funded in the early days and knowing that you're going to run into those science projects uh, was really helpful for us. Yeah, there's definitely no way to undervalue that. The, uh, the, the benefit of having three conceivable ways to do it and having the, the, the finance behind you to say, that's cool, let's try all three uh, is, is a, a, you know, is fortunate. That, that lets you test early and test often. And if one of them fails, that's okay because there's two other birds in flight. Paul, again, I found this really fascinating. And like I said, especially since I've had back surgery and I remember something my surgeon said, he said, we're going to, and it was great. He said, we're going to do everything possible before resorting to surgery. I think yeah. I asked him to repeat that because he's a surgeon. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know what I did? I tried everything. I mean, I have a hit list of about 12 different things I tried over time. And when I finally did have the surgery, like I said earlier, um, I felt like a new person, but I still mm-hmm. had that, you know, residual pain. It's not like it was there before, um, you know, that was, it was much more intense, but now there are certain activities where I find that the back pain will kick in. So um, I just wondering, did, did these guys say anything about residual pain? Uh, they did. And, and hey, once again, thanks so much for, for sharing your experience here, Amy. Um, Lee, Lee did touch on that a bit. He said that... Um, Many of the patients that are, you know, really in your exact situation, they underwent surgery that aimed to help a problem. Mm-hmm. It may have helped somewhat, but then like, you know, we're talking about here, it, it left this residual pain behind. Yeah. And, you know, really an implantable device is, is yet another surgery, right? Yeah, right. So there's a portion of people that go through yet one more surgery to get a device implanted, which is being implanted to treat the pain. And it, it may be fairly effective at doing that. But we're back to why the small size of their device is so, so important. So imagine something about the size of the palm of your hand being implanted somewhere in your body. I mean, mm-hmm. that thing itself can bring a type of pain, maybe maybe not the exact pain or the level of pain, but, but a type of pain. So I just think it's a really interesting problem that you implant something to solve pain and you do a pretty good job at it, but the residual cost is a bit of a little different pain. So, you know, hopefully this smaller device, this MIPG will certainly cause less residual pain for patients. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. And that that's totally correct. And, you know, I know we mentioned um, earlier, Paul, about like removing the battery mm-hmm. and that was like 80% of the size went away. And that's, I totally get that being on the EE side of the world, we're focused on that quite a bit. Yeah. And so, so that battery, it's, basically external now right yeah, and i yeah, yeah okay um because, and i he did talk a little bit about it sounds like um generating you know uh maybe energy harvesting from certain activities and that kind of maybe powers the battery i like to talk to them more about that mm-hmm. but um so it's external 
because the the ones that I'm with the ones I'm assuming have rechargeable batteries, do those mm -hmm. also wear out after a number of years and have to be replaced? I mean, that would be yet another surgery and perhaps more residual pain. So ah. <laughs> it, it would, it would. So most of the other implantable systems, the bigger ones, uh -huh. um, you know, bigger because they have the battery, they might last five to seven years, I was told. And that's whether they're rechargeable or non-rechargeable. Uh-huh. Um, so since they pulled the battery out of the device, it's hermetically sealed. It's, I mean, it's basically just a microchip, which is another huge improvement for patients because needing a new battery for, you know, uh, the other devices, it means another surgery. Mm -hmm. And it might be one thing when you're 65, which is roughly the average implant age, but it's another thing when you're 70 or 75 or 80. Um, and John told me that their device has a service life, believe it or not, of 18 years. Ah, brilliant. And maybe in 18 years, let's hope we have even better technology out there. Hmm? Well, you know, they're actually like a step ahead of you, Amy. Oh, come um, on. <laughs> well, because, you know, this is a very dynamic, dynamic space and there's always new capabilities that are coming out right. with these IPGs. Um, and honestly, the last thing you want to do is implant a system that's, let's say, good for 18 years and... 18 days later, it's outdated because there's a better one. Yeah. So Lee and the engineers were really smart and they designed it with a just, I mean, a ton of capabilities already built into the chip. Kind of like a, I guess I'd call it a, a highly flexible open architecture. Okay. So let's say new advanced waveforms or parameters come out for these types of devices. The capabilities are already in there. And so uh, through some software upgrades that can unlock that capability in the future. So it's not just a long-term implant, Amy, but they really thought about making sure that it didn't become outdated. Ah, they're, they're pretty close to future-proofing it. Very cool. Um, oh yeah, sorry, I'm getting distracted again. I, I was headed back to Amazon to order mine. <laughs> cool. Well, what, what did you, what did I you go now? <laughs> I got stuff to do, first. Paul. Maybe I, can, maybe I can get you the friends and family discount, Amy. Ah, oh, well, that's awfully nice of you. But will that take care of my shipping? But it's really small, right? So it shouldn't be that. It is, it is. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's not too expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Paul, this has been really fun and um i resonated with me obviously um quite well given my experiences with back pain and chronic pain and it was not painful it's always a joy to hang out with you with a oh. microphone or a headphone or whatever we're using these days one of one of my goals is not to to be your residual pain Amy. <laughs> Um, I'm guessing that's a work in progress, Paul, huh? It is, it is. Okay, okay whatever. Try and do a little better every day. <laughs> you do. <laughs> well, well, kind listeners, as we always like to, uh, to point out, if you are a past R&D 100 award winner, and, and by saying that, I mean, not just from the past year, but even if you won in, say, 1998. Sure. And if you have an interesting creation or development story that you would like to tell, we really should talk. Please email us the details at researchdevelopment.com one word, at wtwhmedia.com. We are always on the lookout for topics for future episodes of this R&D 100 podcast. For certain. And hey, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter at eeworld underscore Amy, A-I-M-E-E, and at WTWH underscore Paul Heaney. That's P-A-U-L-H-E-N-E-Y. Thanks, Amy. And, and next time we are going to learn the next episode about a fascinating technology 
that was used in the fight against COVID-19. So very topical. Oh Great yeah, I'm, I'm ready for a fight, Paul. I'm ready, that's, that's super cool. I can't wait. All right, well, until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kelnoskis over here. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>